Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana I. Ramirez. And I'm Carla Lamb. Today, we're turning tables with Patrick Rosal. Patrick Rosal is an interdisciplinary artist and author of four previous books. Most recently, Brooklyn Antediluvian, winner of the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize and finalist for the Kingsley Tufts Award. He has earned recognition from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Academy of American Poets. He is Professor of Creative Writing at Rutgers University, Camden. We'll start with a clip of Patrick Rosal's March 2021 performance at City of Asylum with David Wright Falladay. We'll transition to an interview I just did with Rosal, some conversation from Carla and I, and finally, we'll get to what we're reading and some thoughts for the road. Welcome. Bienvenidos. Well, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed putting together this episode and I really enjoyed getting to talk to Patrick Rosal. He's somebody whose works whose work I have encountered so many times that I'd never actually gotten to see him perform. And he's such a compelling and fascinating reader of poetry. I think we're in for a really big treat. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of our listeners are going to love it. Yay. All right. Well, why don't we get started and listen to the first poem by Patrick Rosal? And I don't even need to introduce it because he going to do that. So here, let's go back to March 2021. So speaking of running mouths, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be I'll, I'm going to I'm going to open with a um, with a poem called Delenda Undone. Um, and uh, it's about it's about silencing and the sort of history of silencing, particularly in the Philippines, but also, you know, the way that, you know, colonial dynamics, you know, they, these, these, these silences, um, they're, they're, they resuscitate themselves um, over time. And uh, the poem is after Cornelius Edie, The Lenda Undone. And so we've been told to shut up. Don't talk, they say, too fast, too loud, or for too long. Don't take too much time trying to tell the truth. But this is my work, to break out among strangers into laughter. How I've watched small children, for example, fill with the lucky gust a poem can ride into the near stillness of a room and dance. For that, I am always, as now, grateful. My father tells me, in his seminary days, during the Japanese occupation, most of the priests who ran that school were German. The boys, then, were to speak only in Latin and would surely be slapped three Sundays back if heard speaking the language of my father's country, which is a beautiful country and a beautiful language and which has a curious word for being so suddenly seized by affection you clench every muscle from your eyelids to your toes for wanting to hold a loved one tight to squeeze one and kiss one so deep you place yourself and your beloved on the brink of physical harm there's no word for this in english No word for those small provinces of silence or for this kind of love that will trouble that silence into music. 
My work is trying to find the very word rippling in my body, which is a woman's body, my mother's, and a man's body, my father's, and nowhere to be found in the languages that have conquered the lands of my ancestors. On the outskirts of every empire, there are man-made lakes large enough to receive with ease 100 villages worth of bones tossed into them. This is a fact. There are more than 7 million Ilocanos in the Philippines, maybe a million in diaspora. All of us at one time or another have been told to shut up, don't talk too loud, too slow, or for too long in Saudi Arabia, in Madrid, in Tokyo, in Milan, on Bowery, near the foot of First Street, we've been told this. Some of us have been famous liars. Ferdinand, for example, who married another liar, Imelda, and my grandfather, Capitan of the Barrio, who claimed to kick the shit bare-fisted and single-handedly out of 14 ruffians in the small barangay of Santo Tomas. Actually, he kicked the shit out of five. Nine ran away. These are not lies. This is the truth. I'm not wealthy. I can't buy space or time on billboards or websites. The name I inherit doesn't part columns in the city's daily journal. My family comes from a long line of farmers. My cousins scrub their chopping blocks with salt. They shush the goats before they kill them. I can hear that poem over and over and over, absolutely. And especially that last line, the image and the the feeling. Just, they shush the yeah. goats before they kill them. Yeah, it's almost like a climax of some kind. Like everything just culminates to that moment. It's a full stop at the end, you know, obviously like the feeling. I'm just like whiplash. It's like, oh my gosh, yeah. Like. My family comes from a long line of farmers. My cousins scrub their chopping blocks with salt. They shush the goats before they kill them. Right. And all three are like three short declarative sentences that take up one line. Right. And are active. Right. My family comes. My cousins scrub. They shush. Right. And that move from like, you know, my family to my cousins to then their action of the goats. um, I think is really nice as well. So, yeah. I, you know, what part got me thinking um, was the, the section where he's discussing how there's a word for being so seized with affection that your whole body freezes. And it, yeah. made, me, it made me think of like the words in Spanish that I love that have no translation mm-hmm. in English. And yes, like, there's so many. Yeah, I think my two favorites have to be hands down um, embalagar, which means mm. to be overcome by sweetness. I have too much sweetness. I've been overcome by sweetness and therefore I cannot have any more cake. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? And <laughs> there isn't really a, an equivalent for that, right? You might say like right. overwhelmed by richness, like, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. even then that's not one word. And then the other one is estrenar. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, estoy estrenando yeah. carro. You know what I mean? Like, how do you yeah. translate estoy estrenando ropa nueva? Right? Like, I am yeah, showing off, debuting. Yeah, I'm debuting, but debuting mm-hmm. in a way that is meant to be seen. Yeah, it's like, it's lost in translation. There's like that oomph factor, I think, that 
like estrenar because it really implies like a, a certain attitude. Um, right, like estás, estás estrenando un carro is really different than you're debuting your new car. Yeah. Right. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't sound right. Yeah. It doesn't sound right. It, even though it might technically mean the same thing. Yeah, the Spanish language and many other languages, but because I'm most familiar with Spanish, I tend to think like I, it's just so frustrating that I can't get like that exact attitude across, you know, and especially to like an English speaker or someone that's like learning Spanish. They're not necessarily going to know like that reference or that play on words or the double entendre, like the oh, Spanish yeah. language is honestly like really well known for like we love our little puns. But I mean, the same is true. The same is true in English, right? Like I know that like awkward is a word I don't know how to translate from English to Spanish. Mm -hmm. I never thought of that. Yeah. How but like, how, that? how would you say like, oh, that felt awkward. Mm -hmm. Like you get different <laughs> with weird or strange, but mm -hmm. weird or strange aren't the same as awkward. Right. Right. Like, oh, awkward. You know, like, there's no real word for that. Like, you end up with, like, shame or apenado, but that's not quite it either. Yeah, but then you can try to use, like, some of the slang, me senti, or no me cae, or something like that. Like, it all comes very close to awkward, but it's not that quite. It doesn't <laughs> you know quite I mean? express yeah. that ineffable awkwardness mm -hmm. of awkward i would say the same thing is true for disappoint because this mm. desilusionado is like uh -huh. is disillusioned more so than sí. it is disappointed you know mm -hmm. but like estoy like how do you say i'm disappointed right disillusioned is the closest <laughs> you have and and disillusioned has sort of taken on like umbrella that word so that it means both and so depending on mm -hmm. usage it's either disillusioned or disappointed but it doesn't quite mm -hmm. capture like white american disappointment <laughs> <laughs> specifically let me tell you a little bit about yeah my favorite thing in the entire world, of course, which is Eurovision. It's Eurovision season, man. So mm -hmm. Eurovision is happening this week. So it's definitely on my mind. But Portugal's entry this year, um, their song is called Saudade. And mm -hmm. Saudade is a word that I've heard from Brazilian people as well, who obviously speak Portuguese. Um, but it's like this concept of nostalgia and longing and grief kind of all mixed together. Um, mm -hmm. But my friend who's Brazilian always says it's sort of like the national characteristic of Brazilian people. <laughs> like they are all yeah. kind of, or Portuguese speakers, you know, that they're always in this state of like perpetual, like longing and grief and nostalgia kind of mixed together. Mm -hmm. um, and there isn't really quite a word for that in Spanish or in English, right? Saudade. Mm -hmm is the word in Portuguese. Mm. And, you know, so their entry this year is a song um, by this singer who wrote it about losing um, some family during COVID. Um, mm. But it's it's that concept of the ineffable, the, that what cannot mm. be said in any other way. Uh, and the chorus is, right. I think, like, nothing more than I can say says it any better way or something like that, you know? And I'm just mm -hmm. like, yes. Do you know the word specifically for the smell of earth after the rain? No. What is the word? <laughs> it's 
petrichor. So it's like really interesting concepts, right? Like specifically like the smell of earth after the rain. And it's like, we do have certain words. I, th- I think what you're so saying we- is that we have these words, but we were, we're so disconnected from them. Yeah, disconnected. The fact that there are so many words that really do exist that we don't engage with anymore and that we've let be lost. And so, yeah, yeah no, etymology is... Um, wild, wild subject. And I find it to be really helpful um, for secret nefarious trivia purposes. Um, Right. Speaking of trivia purposes, I have an announcement at the end of the show. Why don't we, I guess, uh, move forward? And now for the rest of the performance of Patrick Rosal. This next poem is called A Memory on the Eve of the Return of the U.S. Military to Subic Bay. Of course, the U.S. had vacated um, Olongapo, Subic Bay, um, the the base out there, and then came back um, several years ago. Um, My first visit um, to the Philippines when I was, uh, I mean, I think I was like 13 years old. Um, We went to Subic Bay because my dad had a distant relative who was actually the colonel in charge of Philippine forces at Subic Bay. And this is a sort of inspired by an, by an incident um, during, during that visit when I was young. <clears throat> a memory on the eve of the return of the US military to Subic Bay. Every day in America, I'm trying to be taken seriously. When the United States last owned the naval base at Subic Bay, my uncle, My father's distant cousin was a colonel in charge of Philippine forces under Marcos. On our first and only visit to the Philippines, my brother, maybe eight, and I, 13, were left alone in my uncle's house with one of my uncle's guards and my uncle's grandson, a boy, maybe five, And when the guard dashed out to eat lunch, he left the front door open and the five-year-old with us. The sentry had slid his gun under a small table beside the door and the boy who spoke no English picked up the automatic and pointed the rifle at my chest and then my brother's head. The boy was smiling. It must have been funny on the other side of the gun. I couldn't simply stroll my little brother past the barrel to the door where it was a bright blue day. I couldn't see the safety from where I was standing. So I said, put that down, I'm serious. And the boy laughed. I said, put it down, it's not a joke. And the boy laughed some more. He laughed in the Colonel's language and he laughed in mine as if we all understood the laughter. Sometimes I think there are two countries, one on either side of a gun. There are guns at the borders, but that's how borders are made. They are made of guns, I'm serious. 
So I'm going to read two more. This one is, um, as many of you might know, this the, the history of colonialism in the Philippines goes a long way, all the way back to the Spanish, but at the turn of the century, uh, which is a period that, that, um, that David's novel sort of leads into actually. And um, black soldiers played a, an important role in the construction of America and race um, as the US tried to expand militarily into the Pacific, right? So this poem is called The Scavenger's Ode to the Turntable, AKA A Note to Thomas Alva Edison. And there's all kinds of backstory to this, but I'll just say this. I grew up in Edison, New Jersey, not far from the lab where Edison invent, in, uh, invented what would eventually become the turntable. I grew up in, there's turntables right behind me. <laughs> I, um, I grew up as a DJ and we used to take cheap turntables, cut them all apart, put them back together again, put together battle sets. People would dance and have a great time. Little did we know that um, the lab where he invented this machine was not a long walk away from our houses. Um, but also that Edison, Edison was a, a pro-imperialist. Um, you, um, you could actually read some really interesting criticism by Christine Balance um, about that. So anyway, so there's, that, there's, you need to know the undercurrent of that um, in, in, in hearing this um, poem. I'm gonna sing a little bit if you don't mind, man. <laughs> Two turntables and a mic, a wolf fat MC on the set. A two turntables and a mic, a one fat MC on the set. A two turntables, one fat MC, two turntables and a mic, a one fat MC on the set. We lifted the precious arm first, then the platter. We pulled free the belt and unscrewed the top. I didn't take shop or build a whole lot by hand, but I was pretty good with a knife. Poke the half dull blade clean and gentle through the turntable's plastic. I sawed down four inches straight as I could make it. Me and my boys, sons of cops, bookkeepers, and ex-priests, picked up gear other DJs didn't want no more. One prep school kid who just bought a shiny new mixer tossed out his two-month-old Newmark, which we picked from the garbage and hoisted home. We harvested the slider from the rich kid's rig. I stripped the wires tips and soldered them to pitch contacts in a basement of a maple split in Edison, New Jersey. We were learning to turn anything into anything else. While our mo mothers played mahjong in the sala and our fathers bet slow horses and the government bombed Iraq, we learned to poise pennies on the cartridge head so the diamond stylus would sit deep in the vinyl's groove. A dance floor could turn from wine into riot quick if a record skipped when we spun back the wax to its cue. We stayed awake from noon to noon, digging out from crates some forgotten voice or violin to scratch. We juggled and chirped. We perfected the grind of a downbeat and dropped it on the baseline coming round. Half trash, half hallelujah. Our hands cut back to bambata and made a dance hall jump. We held one ear to the syncopated kick and the other to a future music that no one else could hear. Out of a hunk of rescue junk, we built a machine to mix the classics we faded and transformed. We chopped up masters and made the whole block bounce. Two turntables and a mic. 
I want fat MC on the set. A two turntables and a mic. I want fat MC on the set. A two turntables, one fat MC, two turntables and a mic. One fat MC on a set. So I'm going to close with this poem. This also has a little bit of backstory, which I'll try to race through. The poem is called The Hollow Hollow Men, an anthem. Hollow Hollow is a Filipino ice dessert. It was actually invented by uh, Japanese prostitutes um, during the American occupation era. But it literally, it means mix mix. And you mm -hmm. can mix like like canned goods, like red bean and and jarred things like um, sweet lanka, uh, jackfruit, um, um, uh, condensed milk. Um, so it's like this, like it's it's literally like it's mixed of it's a mix of all these different things, and everybody has a different sort of like mix of hollow hollow. So this is literally called um, the mix mix man, the hollow hollow man, an anthem, and it's actually in conversation with T. S. Eliot. Mm -hmm. who is, of course, from St. Louis. And mm -hmm. St. Louis was the site of the 1904 World's Fair, where the largest and most lucrative um, exhibit were Filipinos. Um, and that was a way to justify the invasion and occupation of the Philippines, uh, was to show that they were savages at this at this World's Fair. Of course, uh, we know that actually T.S. Eliot visited that, so I'm sure that he saw the Filipinos on display. There's other sort of um, you know sort of archival records that point to the fact that he that he was there, that he may have even written about it when he was a youngster, um, and then eventually he went on to to be an anthropologist. He was trained as an anthropologist, right? Which was a science at that time that was meant really to kind of justify all kinds of racial hierarchies. So this is called the hollow hollow man, which in English um, translates as the mix mix man. Oh, and he has a, po he has a poem called the hollow man. Hollow man. Yeah. Right. So this is called the hollow hollow man. <laughs> we are the hollow hollow men, the mix mix men, the fresh cut mango in your mouth men the men who pee pee in your coat the joke that yokes the beasts of vinyl and diamond men the last bit of salt to cut the ice men the wine skins without wine blunt hilt of the bolo to your head men we are the how how men the carabao men back to ten men pen pen men the sarapen the cuchillo men the almacen the wen men come again men the middle men and omega men you build fences for we might steal your hand men kimat and pang or men first to suicide in the cipher, man. We use our inside voices for an outside fight, man. Say three Hail Marys and whisper hallelujah. Flip the New Testament like we do judo, man. Voodoo, man. Raw blood and garlic, man. Kilawen, man. I say agyaman ak, you say a. That's the mix, mix, man. <laughs> Um, I want to talk a little bit about structure just on the page. Um, I know we just heard some of your poetry. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you could speak to the relationship between how you perform and how you use white space, mm. because it, it doesn't appear to have a direct correlation. Right. And so uh, what I would think of as, you know, the white space of the performance is not quite how it lays out on the page. And yet I would say, you know, they work together. Um, mm -hmm. when you are listening and reading at the same time. So, yeah, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I don't accept that, except that it might be more impressionistic than anything, which is that the visual field of a poem um, 
elicits a reaction or sends a kind of information about its density, its um, its its rhythm, its um, its length, its brevity, um, and so the, those are really the things that I'm that I'm kind of thinking about. Are um, is it is it more of a meditative poem? I think that my, many of my almost I would say most of my kind of narrative poems are kind of in blocks, a la Philip Levine, you know. Um, whereas m- more more lyrical pro- poems will have a little bit more white space and um, have breaks inside of in, inside of the lines and so forth. So no, I don't think that there's a I don't think that there's a direct correlation. Um, just that the visual field is meant to evoke something of. Um, the 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 vibe uh, of of the poem how it might sound out loud yeah I think in particular uh, I'm thinking of a memory on the eve of the return of the U S military to Subic Bay mm-hmm. which you know in performance has a very narrative quality you know yeah. you feel like you're being told a story in the poem. yeah that poem in particular because um, it's the, I feel like the, the white spaces are kind of like visual hesitations. There's a way I, I feel like I needed to sort of, um, or the poem was kind of telling me that it needed to slow the eye down um, because these, the actual period of time that all of this happens is actually quite small. And so what the breaks do is just kind of slow the eye down a little bit and create the tension of this kid you know, picking up this, picking up this gun and, and, and pointing it at you know, two kids, two other kids, really. Um, so, yeah, while it's while it's narrative, it's it, I think one of the things the white space in that poem is doing is really controlling the space and maybe accentuating some of the some of the tension in the in the moment and the time. I, I found yeah. myself really loving it as I read it um, because it really did force me to slow down mm-hmm. um, in a way that, you know, when you're performing, the tension is all in your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going that slow, uh, but you you bring it out vocally, orally, um, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just found you know it interesting to kind of compare the two. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Speaking a little bit um, about kind of playing with structure, I found that in the newer poems, there was a little bit more playing with white space than in the older poems where we mm-hmm. kind of have that more like Philip Levine um, sense of things. Um, and so I, I do you found yourself like taking different risks now than you did before. <sighs> That's a great question. I like to think that I am, <laughs> but who knows? I mean, I think I think there are a lot, of, a lot of the poems in in the new section of the new book um, work associatively, work and work in sort of archetypes of images, have the feeling of allegory or allegorical dreams. Maybe all dreams are allegorical. And, in some way, um, they're slower. I mean, when David Wright and I read for City of Asylum, he, it was one thing. He's like, "Man, I noticed that your your poems have kind of." He called it more ruminative. <laughs> well, I've become a more ruminative human being <laughs> over the last haven't we, decade. Haven't or so. we all in our old age? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. You know, like I feel like. There are ways that like my early poems in Uprock and my American Kundiman were, I look, and especially putting together Selected, there are a lot of those poems I could never write, 
right now, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm taking risks now, but they're not the same risks that I took, you know, when I was when I was first um, first writing poems. I think my risks now might be a little bit more a little bit more intellectual, might be um, more towards contemplating my spiritual life in a lot of ways in conjunction with the knowledge that I've accrued about about history. You know, to be a Filipino American and have been born here on the East Coast when I was born, um, when there were not a lot of Filipino Americans out this way, just to try to address the life that is in front of me without, you know, being crammed into the box that I talk about in the beginning of that, um, in the beginning of my book, that's a, that's a risk. I, there's, there's a way, and I I don't know, I don't know how to, how to say this because it's a very complex situation, but there's, there's a way that one can auction off one's identity. I mean, I think this has been a story for, for a very long time that, that people's histories and identities get co-opted very quickly by a capitalist system. And to me, the risk is the, is the trying to just tell the truth in a way that's really, really true and is not appealing to this other very seductive um, portrayal of my own life, my own neighborhood, my own people that I, that I love. Um, and yeah, I think that that's the thing that I, that I, that I want to, that I want to put on the line the most is, is trying to, trying to be honest with, with my dream life and my imagination. Oh, that's such a lovely way of putting it. Um, but I think it also speaks to a certain, I want to say immigrant tension a little bit too, right? Like I, I resonate with that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I understand the way that language in so many ways is very restrictive. And yet, you know, as poets and writers, how much do we enjoy like breaking down exactly what language has done to us, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if, uh, if you know the poet Stephen Bohr, um, who hasn't mm-hmm. been a poet for a very, very long time, um, but he always talks about, you know, bending his tongue in a new direction. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I, that image has always stuck with me. It's like learning to train your tongue to bend in a new direction. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I love what you have to say about language. And I wonder if you could just kind of unpack, um, you know, just for our listeners who haven't read your prologue, a little bit about your thoughts about the box and language and, you know, the restrictions and yet the playfulness that comes with that. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I've been thinking about for a long time is this paradox of being inside of a power structure or several power structures that insists on particular particular definitions of me and particular associations. It is. It's restrictive. It's frustrating. It pisses me off and I want to and I and I want to write against it. Um, it's, I don't I also don't want to write against it. I want to write toward my own dream life, my own soulfulness without having to regard this this thing that's constantly that's constantly hounding me. And I think it's that that tension that that you were just talking about earlier. There's a heavy gift that comes along with that. 
Because one of the things that I think I'm talking about in that preface is that as these power structures begin to impose their architectures on us, immediately what we do and what I know my parents, my grandparents, and my ancestors have done is build essentially meta structures to to trouble the rigidness of of that. And and so the metaphor that I use in the in the um, in the preface is that of my grandfather, who was a sugarcane cutter in uh, on Hawaiian plantations during the 1920s. Um, these are men who were essentially shipped over from the Philippines to Hawaii and, you know, paid virtually nothing. They were charged more at the end of the week for their supplies than they earned. And so they had to figure out a way to survive. So while they were working in these in these cane rows, they would plant crops in the spaces in between. It's that practice of building metastructures of survival in between the things that we are um, made to, compelled to produce. Um, so that that's really that's really the whole idea is that is that you know we're constantly being sort of shoved into a lane or into a box but it's a it, it's it's like this it's this beautiful sort of survival mechanism for us to engage our imagination to say what do i need what do i care about how do i how do i reconstruct my relationships with the beings who are who are around me around this survival and that story of my grandfather growing crops in between the commercial crops that's to me that's a guiding metaphor as far as i'm concerned yeah um have you ever read alexander galloway's protocol no he his whole deal is thinking about systems of control right as defined sort of by technological eras and so his argument is that nowadays with the internet um and all that that uh, protocological control is the way that it exists yes. right but without the strict systems and the strict protocols you can't have you 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 need them in order for the anarchic spaces hmm. to kind of exist um, hmm. inside them, you know. And so, hustling inside the system requires a system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's like there is a sort of you know a danger uh, in sort of needing the oppressive structure to kind yeah. of find that hustle in between. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can begin to define yourself in those in those terms rather than understanding that there's a kind of there's a continuity um, that our anarchic structure belongs to something that it that that has existed without the colonial structures before, right? The soulful is something to me. The idea of a god self, the idea of you know the dream the the, the dream space that Willie Perdomo often talks about. That that's a continuity across time. That was there before Magellan arrived in the Philippines, you know. And um, to me, that's the thing that we are trying to preserve. But it becomes very seductive to to imagine it only in relationship. What is is it important to imagine it in relationship to these power structures? Yes, but when we only imagine it as a reaction to rather than a preservation of something that already existed, then it can become a very seductive kind of thing. And so we're we're sort of, I think, constantly trading systems, um, you know, in order to find the one in which we can thrive without oppression. But uh, 
Yeah. You can't solve that with poetry. <laughs> but maybe it could be a part of something. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we can use poetry to interrogate it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, playing with form and playing with structure and playing with what's expected in language is a, is kind of a way of dismantling a system of poetics, right? Um, yeah. And it has a certain kind of important vibe to it, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, too. So, I mean, I would say the risks matter. Yeah. I would, I would definitely. I would say that they do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so charmed at, at the invitation to be on a show called Charla Cultural. Um, and I, I, there's something that I don't think that I've ever said. I may have, but there's nothing that I've not said this publicly. I was thinking about it in advance of our conversation. And that's that while I strongly identify as a, as a Filipino American poet, my first language is English. My second language is Spanish. My third hey, language. <laughs> my third language is actually my parents' language is Ilocano because they did not they didn't speak to us in that language when we were growing up. I learned it um, later on as pretty much as an adult. But Spanish I was speaking, you know, I started speaking Spanish just because of where I grew up. Um, my 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 first sort of phrases and exchanges were when I was like 11 or 12 years old. I'm not seen as like a, as a Spanish speaker, you know, and um, but I have such close in the world of, of art and, and poetry. I have such close ties to Caribeños and um, even- oh, I have so much love for my Pinoy brothers and sisters. <laughs> I mean, no. we share this whole, we share such no. a, such a we history. Share, we know? share a colonizer, man. Totally. Um, totally. Isn't that, isn't that everything? Isn't that everything? <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, you know, what is the whole thing? You're Latino, but not Hispanic or Hispanic, but not Latino. Hispanic, but not Latino or Latino. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so like. Yes, because those- you're colonized by Spain. So you got the Hispanic, but the la- <laughs> not the Latino because you're not in the continent. I, right. And, you know, there's, I mean, Chabacano, which is, that's essentially, I mean, that's more Spanish than it is Austronesian. There's a, it's a, one of the languages in, and I think central or southern, southern Philippines, southern Philippines. It's more Spanish than it is Austronesian, although it's a it's kind of a, a living hybrid of, of the two. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very it's a very close it's a very close history. And I, you know, I feel I feel a, a, a great kinship. You I, know? you know, I used to watch um, Filipino soap operas. Um, <laughs> Amazing. I always felt like, no, I recognize this. This is fine. Yeah. Just like just replace soccer with stick fighting. And, <laughs> you know, and like, but it felt like a lot of the concerns and the mores and the things that made the the grandmas get upset so were the cool. same things. Yeah, I remember, you know, I remember when I first learned the word hibarito and I was like, oh, that's that's like my family in the Philippines. They're a bunch of campesinos. It's like that you could basically do <laughs> <laughs> it's the parallels are 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 many 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 many. Well, you know, it's our it's our colonizer daddy. Um, <laughs> that but to us also a lot. find it here in the U.S., it's a home for me. Spanish is a home for me as a language. You know, in the way that 
I think language is like, I, I remember when Rigo, Rigoberto Gonzalez, I first heard him say it at a reading. He's like, he's like language is home. He didn't say, he didn't say English or Spanish or anything. He said language is a home. And for those of us to have felt a kind of waywardness that language itself is a home, but among inside of that big home, Spanish has been one, Spanish is a language that I, that I dream in. And I, I think I was about, about to ask that. I, like, I do, do when, especially if, if I've been speaking Spanish a lot, like, you know, there's a, this whole block is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very mixed, um, it's a very mixed block. Um, sure, but, but saludas Salvadorian, en la calle. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, you know, there's Salvadoreño right, right next door. And, you know, like I, we go down, if I, you know, I oh. walk down, I'm greeted all the time in Spanish. Salvadoran goats do though. Okay, sorry. See, this is the thing. There was not enough food in your book, by the way. I wanted more food, more smells. Thank you. <laughs> there's a couple favorite. of slaughtered goats in there. We don't get to the eating, but yeah. Oh, oh that tendency that you have. That is very narrative poetry tendency, by the way, which is like, oh, here's a story. Here's a story. Oh, no, a dark turn. Something horrifying has happened. <laughs> Boom. Last line. <laughs> oh, they don't, you know, they shush you the goats. It, before, they shush the goats before they slaughter them. Like, what? That's what you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let me tell you how you write poems. <laughs> Thanks for mapping With it out. Not <laughs> enough food. <laughs> I'll remember. I'll remember. No, I, you know what? I think we're just like sister cultures, you know, and yeah. in a way that, you know, Australians and Americans are not. No, it's not the same. No, it's not the same. It's not the same. It's not. Yeah. I mean, I have to, I really got to think through it more but i thinking I, I think that i felt ambivalent about claiming it as a as a place of of care and maybe maybe it's a space of ambivalence to begin with maybe that's where i gotta i really have to start but there is a there's a there's a way that i feel held by it i feel a kind of responsibility for you know for spanish and yeah i don't know i just I, i'm i'm just happy to say that here on on a program that's called Charla Cultural. Well, we, we, we'd love to have you, you know. <laughs> y, y si quieres hacer otra versión completamente en español, se puede. Eh, podemos hacerlo, sí. <laughs> I don't think the listeners, our, our listeners are all in. <laughs> Carla and I, and I drop in a hole. Ay, Dios mío. <laughs> so. Well, you know what I did for... Of a period of time, probably for about five years or so, is when I would travel, I would ask people how to say, will you dance with me in language? Oh. So I can say it in Greek. I could say it in Japanese. I could say it in Chinese. Um, I used to know how to say it in Danish, but I've completely forgot how to say See, it. See, that's, that's beautiful. That's like you're on a mission to world peace. <laughs> one, one dance partner at a, you're like the UN of Sashu, you know, just going in. <laughs> it was either, it's always that or where's the bathroom. Those two seem the most <laughs> useful, the useful, most useful <laughs> terms to learn in a, uh, well, I, I think it's a, you know, universal needs. <laughs> Both of them dan dancing in the bathroom. That's right. <laughs> you know what? Maybe the book had enough smells. Um, <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> there's that, there. I don't think there's a whole lot of poop in my books, to be honest. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I do want to say what I don't know how much time we have, but I do want since we're on a roll, I just want to mention this. Speaking of poop and smells, <laughs> I want to say that about in I think it was 2014, Ross Gay and I proposed a panel on Dookie Poetics, and uh, it was, and it wasn't accepted. It was not accepted. Can you believe Damn. that? I was cited it a, Joyce. Was it, a, was it a hard pass? <laughs> this 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 has to stay. This can't be edited out. <laughs> and this concludes the sermon. <laughs> Well, now I know if we bring the Dookie Poetics panel back around, we know that you're going to be on the proposals. (laughs) You're clearly qualified. Oh, I got stories. (laughs) We just, what we need to do is assemble the anthology, you see. Yeah. (laughs) And then then to promote the anthology. That's it. it. Somebody get Nop on the phone. We need to do this. Penguin classics all the way. (laughs) Oh, Uh, oh, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, it's, It's really great. Great to talk to you. Great to laugh. I wanted to know what you were thinking when Patrick was talking about how the term performance poet is really racialized a lot of the time. Oh, wow. And so I I hadn't really thought about that, you know, and so I've been thinking about this since the interview and I'm like, "Mm, like, what does it mean that as a writer of color and as a poet of color, I tend to say I'm a performance poet more than Mm -hmm. I do poet, Um, you know, and is it because of my own insecurity or is it because most of the time I am invited to perform my work? What is actually the difference? Shouldn't they be comparable? Like, shouldn't it be able to hold up? Like if you can perform yeah. it well, doesn't that mean it is written well, but maybe not? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a history in Slam, right? Yeah, and Slam I think, is and I, where I, I discovered yeah. poetry. So I, I didn't yeah. I didn't come from academia and then dabble in Slam. I came from Slam and then found academic poetry. I think how you enter poetry can be very defining to your outlook as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of had both, you know, I went through that uh, beat poet phase, you know, and I was all about city light books and going to San Francisco. <laughs> and like I, and then I oh, discovered. A Getty um, of the mind. I know. A Getty oh, of the soul. <laughs> honestly, I love that movement. And because it, I do think that that's when I was coming up as a poet, you know, I was like very much like self-taught in that genre specifically. Um. But then, you know, like you evolve ideally and you start reading other things. Um, And I feel like some people, it's interesting. I don't know if you found this um, to be true, but some people kind of get stuck in that performance style or at least like the influence of the beat generation. Um, And also I'm finding, I find a lot of parallels with, um, with young, younger poets. Like that's kind of how the introduction to like they'll have like this poet voice and this overperformance and this like slam voice style 
Um, and they're trying there. I think that's like reaching for something, but then it's like, okay, well, I don't know you find- what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 yeah I yeah, have yeah, no concept <laughs> of what you mean. What is uh, a slam poetry voice? How does one do that? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, there's nothing wrong with it because I love, I mean, with Patrick's performance, I, I wouldn't call it slam necessarily, but it was just no. like. No, no, the, performing, um, right. performing well and right. being stuck in slam voice. I mean, I, my, my friends in high school used to make fun of me. They used to call it my Sylvia Plath voice, um, you know, because <laughs> I would read, you know, like Patrick Rosal is an interdisciplinary artist and author yeah. of four previous books, you know, and I'd read in this, this is my poetry reading voice, dramatic pause at the end of a line break. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I had a, I had a uh, forensics coach, um, weirdly enough, who was like, you need to stop that. You need to stop that. Stop, 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 stop. Yeah. 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 You can perform well yeah. and you can, you can perform in smooth voice, which is what I like to call it. My smooth voice where I'm like, mm-hmm. Adriana Ramirez is a blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. Welcome to my book reading, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's still, it's still natural. Like it's still like, it's yeah. a, it's an affected reading voice that still has a natural cadence um yeah. and is not like dramatic pause uh and the day that somebody mm-hmm. told me that line breaks do not necessarily mean pausing and that you can mm-hmm. read through the line break oh my god changed everything for me and freed me up in a way that i didn't realize my performance had not been freed so wow. um <laughs> i i was saying you know you can keep a, a reading voice but you have to be aware that it still has to sound human like mm-hmm. a person and not like you're doing yeah. an imitation of like a phone tree woman press one for english por favor prima dos, <laughs> you know what i mean like like you need to sound like a real living breathing person when you're giving a poetry yeah. reading but you also you can play with smooth voice you just have to be careful right and there's so many things that poets get you know criticized for um like body language, your stance, your posture, your gesticulations, your hand movement. I've been told, okay, use your hands. Don't use the podium. Okay. Don't, don't use the podium, you know? And I've been told like, you know, and then it's just about finding like your own style, your, your comfort level, honestly. And like, once I've discovered that I can go up on a stage, adjust the mic as I see fit and like assess the audience and take three seconds to just like breathe it makes everything so much better and a little bit smoother you know too instead of um I remember performing a lot in college and it's just like okay like nervous tension like I I didn't breathe for however long and I just ran through those poems in like five minutes when I had 15 you know so it's like I yeah I'm really at least that's my it's been my experience no no I coach this. I coach this. Yeah. Yeah. I go to high schools and, you know, or I've coached adults and just been like, okay, like here's how we're going to read the poem better. And here's how we're going to figure out how to read this poem. Right. Um, I I find that taking a a more theatrical approach in the sense that Mm -hmm. you rehearse, you practice, and it doesn't have to necessarily be like choreography or, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. turn to the left, you can still be in the moment and present, um, you know, but you should know generally like don't cover your face. Like don't put the microphone in a way that you can't (laughs) see your face, you know, know how to use a microphone. Yes. Like don't, 
don't cover your, make sure that people can see you, make sure that people yeah. can hear you, right. That you're using the microphone correctly. And once you've got like, see you and hear you and, you know, speak clearly so they can understand you. Once you've got that, it, mm-hmm. it's all, it's all about personal style. So, you know, yeah, the personal as, style. this is a master's class in performance people. <laughs> you know, like anyone out there that wants to perform poetry, listen to Adriana. But the I, more you turn- know. <laughs> um, so I'm going to turn the tables um, and ask you, what kind of audience member are you at a reading? Oh, depends on the reading. At the, okay. you know, at the golf clap reading, I am, oh, yes, golf clappy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then at the poetry slam, I'm that person in the background screaming, go in, poet. So. <laughs> <laughs> you ever do like the snap? The- oh, yeah. I'll snap. I'll be like, oh, that's me. Uh, I'm the one going. Mm. Yeah. Oh, mm. sometimes I'll be like, yes. testify, testify. So. <laughs> Got it. Preach, preach, preach. Yeah. Uh, no, I get, um, I get moved. I think I'm like, yeah. I, I, I swear. I, I, I think I belong in a different church than the kind I grew up in, but mm. <laughs> I'm excited. I want to get yeah. up there and start, you know, join in, uh, but I don't, I don't, I respect the performer. You know, I, I really try to respect yeah, yeah. the space I'm in, but whenever I can, I'm fucking mm-hmm. excited to be there because it's such a privilege yeah. and it's such an yeah, honor. Absolutely. How about you? I know, right. And it's such a vulnerable space too. Um, you strike uh, me as someone who listens deeply. Ooh, yeah. I I really do. I try to. I used to be the kind of poet that I used to sit in the back and take notes. <laughs> <gasps> Look at you. But then I was like, maybe I should change that. Um, or I'll, I'll take some notes, like lines, of course, that speak to me or words that kind of pop out, like just on my notes app. Um, I really love the moments in readings, like the collective sigh of the audience or like mm. the nod, you know, mm. I'm a, I'm definitely a, a nodding, oh, the, a nodder. The deep nod. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah, can see that. I like, can mm, see that. Mm-hmm. Mm. But now I sit like either in the middle or the front. Cause I want to see, I want to see faces and I want to see expressions and the mouth moving. I want to feel it. Like I want to fully sensory experience um, Love that. That's kind of the audience member I am nowadays. So, Adriana, speaking of reading, what are you reading? So, I'm going to cheat, and I'm not even going to talk about reading because I want to talk about Jeopardy. Okay. Yes. Tell us. On May 18th, uh, I'm going to be on Jeopardy. Uh, I can't tell you how I did. Well, I love Jeopardy. That sounds fun. Like send us oh, a link it's, when it's it amazing. Airs. It's amazing. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I can't believe I did this. It was done. I did it. Awesome. So, I can't wait to watch it. What are you yeah. reading? Enough about me. Let's talk about you. Um, um, honestly, I think I mentioned this pre- uh, previously in another episode, but I I'm reading To Love an Island. Yes. by Anna Portnoy Brimmer and again um just fully this is like a I don't want to call it a manifesto necessarily but just um a poet coming out of Puerto Rico writing about um 
the Hurricane Maria and all of the conflicts and the loss and the grief mm-hmm. that came out of that. And then honestly, just like in these beautifully crafted poems with tons of voice are just incredible. Mm-hmm. Can't put it down. I want to read this book again, cover to cover. And yeah, shout out to this incredible debut collection. And it's moving. It's revolutionary. It's a call to action. It's just so heartbreaking, you know, too. So that's what I'm reading. And I'm dabbling in uh, Bell Hooks, All About Love. <laughs> like um, you do. My... Some, light, some light dabbling into Bell Hooks. Yeah. I, yeah. I... <laughs> well, I... I, um, my sister and my, a couple of our friends started a book club and this is the book that we all um, decided on. Shout out to book club. Yeah. We need to be better at it. (laughs) Oh, that's like every book club. I've never made it past like four books in a book club before it just evolved into like wine drinking and hanging out. So (laughs) yeah, there's that, but, um, I mean, this Bell Hooks, obviously an incredible author. This book is mind blowing. I know it's been, um, you know, like kind of in the in the news lately, or at least in our feeds and a lot of quoting on Instagram um, after Bell Hooks passed. But um, I, it was one of those books that's like, where was I? Or like, how come I was not exposed to this earlier? I just could have helped me. Oh man, wait, so many things. <laughs> wait till you discovered Judith Butler. Um, okay. <laughs> exactly. Oh, we, we, excellent. Oh. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, have a good one. Love you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez. Committed to social justice and translation. Placing women of color at the center of the conversation. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Charla Cultural is hosted by Adriana E. Ramirez and Carla Lamb. Voice of Goddess and Master of the Archive is Alexis Jabour. Angie Cruz is our advisor and spiritual guide. Transcript support is provided by Clarissa A. Leon. Jesse Welch serves as our production and editorial assistant. Our production design and brand management is done by Little Owl Creative. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.